from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. This is Pitt MedCast. I'm Erica Lloyd. And I'm Elaine Vitone. Back in February 2020, we hosted a live taping of our podcast at the annual meeting of the world's largest general scientific society, AAAS. Today we're recording from the SciMike podcast stage at the 2020 annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. We're here live in Seattle, Washington. Thank you, AAAS, for inviting us back again this year. It's an honor. This was just a few weeks before the COVID-19 pandemic hit the U.S. We're pleased to finally release this episode now, just as the 2021 AAAS meeting is getting underway, virtually, of course. To register and attend live sessions of the conference February 8th through 11th, visit aaas.org. By the way, the conference's online SciMic podcast library features our previous episode, Evolving Situation, starring the University of Pittsburgh's Vaughn Cooper. Today on Pitt MedCast, like daughter, like mother, microchimerism in pregnancy and the long-term health of the mother. Microchimerism? That's shared cells from pregnancy. Before we dive into the tape from Elaine's interview that day, here's a little backstory on this fascinating yet little-known quirk of our biology. From Greek mythology, the chimera was a fire-breathing, two-headed monster. Part lion, part goat, part snake. In medicine, it's a real-life biological mishmash when an individual harbors DNA from someone else. You might have read stories along these lines. Confusion in the crime lab. The murderer is really a chimera of his own chromosomes and those of a fraternal twin that never came to be. That's a real thing. In one case, a woman undergoing testing for a transplant tissue match was told that she wasn't really her child's mother. Doctors have been inducing a kind of chimerism to cure diseases like leukemia through bone marrow transplants since the 1950s. It's a daunting procedure. First, chemo and radiation, then an infusion of healthy blood-forming cells from a donor. If all goes well, the cells kick into gear, functioning and multiplying. And from then on, the donor's DNA is coursing through this patient's veins right alongside their own. As the University of Pittsburgh's Thomas Starzl noted, chimerism happens in solid organ transplants sometimes too. For reasons scientists can't yet explain, self and non-self somehow learn to coexist without the need for drugs that are normally used to stop the body from rejecting the donor organ. Pitt researchers are working to better understand how this works. But by far, the most common form of what scientists now call microchimerism occurs in nature every day. Decades ago, scientists began finding something curious in autopsies of women. Cells with male chromosomes. These were, as it turned out, their son's cells. And though their numbers were very small, the cells were found colonizing in organs all throughout the women's bodies, even decades after they'd given birth. This was later found to be true of daughter's cells as well. And amazingly, the mother-child transfer of cells works both ways. 
For example, my mother's cells are likely still a part of me. I had three kids, a girl and then twin boys, so I have cells from each one of them on board too. And actually, being womb mates, the boys very likely received each other's cells. There's evidence that younger siblings end up with their older siblings' cells as well. So the twins probably have some from big sis too. But today we're focusing on the mom. If a woman harbors her children's cells throughout her life, what does that mean for her health? We'll hear more in the interview after the break. Stay with us. Before he joined H.G. Corona's team at the University of Wisconsin that did Nobel Prize winning work by cracking the genetic code, before he became the biochemist behind paradigm-shifting work on unorthodox DNA structures, Robert Wells was a coal town kid. That goes back <laughs> many, many years in Uniontown, Pennsylvania. Dottie and I were high school sweethearts. Bob would come over to see me at my parents. Wells was doing odd jobs at the time for Dottie's neighbor, a brute of a man who had a moving business that sometimes hauled meat. In between, Wells had to clean the truck. The man would come to the corner to see if Bob's car was at my parents' house. And if he was, he would call my parents. I mean, he was a devil. <laughs> I grew up in a very poor household. I came to the realization that a way out of all of this was education. As a PhD student, Wells came under the tutelage of Pitt's Klaus Hoffmann, a Swiss-German known worldwide for his work synthesizing and revealing the molecular structure of hormones. Hoffmann also ran the biochemistry department with an iron fist, but Hoffmann was no devil. So that was a great experience. From this formative mentorship, Wells learned an appreciation for excellence. And the benefit of hard work. He went on to make formative contributions to our understanding of DNA structure, molecular biology, and genetics in many human diseases. Moved by their gratitude for the institution that launched their success, Robert and Dottie Wells have bequeathed the major gift in Hoffman's honor to support PhD students at PitMed. We appreciate very much my education at the University of Pittsburgh. It's an extraordinary school and has transformed itself over the years into an even stronger and more forward-looking institution. To make a gift, visit give2.pit.edu. That's G-I-V-E-T-O dot P-I-T-T dot E-D-U. Last year, at the AAAS meeting in Seattle, I sat down with an expert in microchimerism, Dr. R. Swati Shri, who trained in OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine at UPMC McKee Women's Hospital. Shri is Assistant Professor of Maternal Fetal Medicine at the University of Washington. Welcome, Swati, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So other groups have done a lot of epidemiological studies on possible effects that these cells have on the mother's health. Can you give me an overview of what they found? It's very complicated, and it probably depends on a few factors. We think it probably has to do a little bit with the circumstances under which those cells were transferred, maybe the gestational age at which a pregnancy ended, or the genetics of the mother and the baby. 
So one of my mentors and my mentor's mentor and really one of the pioneers in the field of understanding microchimerism and health and disease is Dr. Lee Nelson, who's also based here in Seattle. She's really done most of these studies where they've found that women who have rheumatoid arthritis appear to have more of these cells from their infants or their children, not only in their blood, but also in their tissues. So we don't quite know exactly what these cells are doing. Maybe these cells are causing some damage. Maybe these cells are being recruited to these areas to help tissue damage and cause regeneration. But we understand that they really are very important. So women who have rheumatoid arthritis, many of them will harbor a specific gene that predisposes them to getting rheumatoid arthritis later in life. And this is a gene that's part of our HLA system, which is the system that tells us what we are, our self, and what is not self. Interestingly, there's a subset of women who have rheumatoid arthritis who don't actually have that gene or didn't inherit that gene. And when we've looked in the blood of those women, we actually find that disease-predisposing gene in that microchimeric cell population. There's been a few key studies actually by another researcher here in Seattle, Dr. Gadi, who's looked at both in the blood and in breast tissue and found that women who did have breast cancer had lower levels of these cells, suggesting that maybe these cells actually have a protective benefit. Paris women or women who've had pregnancies seem to be less likely to get breast cancer later in life. And maybe this is a mechanism for that. You've looked at things that happen during pregnancy and how they may affect the cellular crossover. Tell me about that work. We found that, yes, we could detect these cells immediately after delivery in the blood of these women, and there appeared to be a higher number in women who had a C-section. And there was actually one study from the Netherlands, and they did find an association with women who had C-sections having an increased risk for having an autoimmune disease diagnosis in the years following delivery. Certainly, we can't put those two together as a causation, but it's certainly thought-provoking that maybe these cells play a role, given the prior data that's shown that they do seem to have a role in autoimmune disease. Shree has also studied these cells in the context of preeclampsia, spontaneous, dangerously high blood pressure in pregnant women that can kill the mother unless the baby is delivered quickly, ready or not. I asked what she's finding in these studies. So we were interested in also understanding if preeclampsia changes the cell transfer between mother and fetus. And certainly we found that, yes, we could detect these cells in the maternal blood and that more of these cells were found in women who had preeclampsia than who did not. Again, an interesting finding if we think about maybe some of the later health effects of preeclampsia decades out from their delivery, these women are significantly higher risk for diseases related to their cardiovascular or circulatory system. Risk factors for preeclampsia, those are some of the same risk factors that put them at risk for cardiovascular disease. But there is actually a really interesting study that also came out of the Netherlands that controlled for those risk factors, and those risk factors alone didn't make that risk go away for cardiovascular disease. The idea then being that there's something about the pregnancy itself that causes either injury or damage or sets that woman up for developing cardiovascular disease later in life. And that second pathway is what we're really interested in because maybe these cells are important in that pathway. So tell me about the questions that you're focusing on now in your research. What we haven't done or no one has done yet is to really look at a population of women who have cardiovascular disease and who had preeclampsia back in their reproductive years and A, say, can we find fetal cells in their blood decades out from delivery? And then secondly, to say, 
are there more of these cells in these women than women who don't have cardiovascular disease? So we can start to then understand better this relationship, but we need to first show those two things. And then certainly the next step would be, if that happens to be true, to then understand, well, how are those cells causing cardiovascular damage? Preeclampsia is a big mystery. The thinking is that it happens because something goes wrong when the placenta first sets up shop. But it's undetectable until much later, when suddenly it's an emergency. I asked whether she's thinking this work could help change that. Absolutely, and that's another area that we're focused on, is prediction or diagnosis. We've also become interested in something called cell-free DNA, which is DNA that's free-floating, that is continuously being shed into the maternal circulation or mother's blood. This cell-free DNA is coming from all of the mother's organs. Because remember, microchimeric cells colonize everywhere. And Shri has found that women with preeclampsia have much higher levels of cell-free DNA in their blood compared to women without preeclampsia. But the fraction thereof coming from the placenta is no different which suggests that there is a component that's coming from somewhere else, which we think is potentially related to the injury that happens to those organs in the setting of preeclampsia. Things like your kidney, liver, and then certainly there are some also brain effects from preeclampsia as well. And because we think that, as you mentioned, preeclampsia sets itself up actually early in pregnancy when the placenta implants, we believe that we should be able to potentially find markers of that dysfunction or that process that went wrong in the blood of these mothers because we can find this DNA from the placenta in mothers. And if we could find that, then we could take those same markers and potentially see if we can look at them earlier in pregnancy, maybe in the first or second trimester, when women don't typically have any signs or symptoms of preeclampsia, to find those women who may be at risk. And then, if we could do that, be able to tailor their care to improve their outcomes. And maybe a pipe dream being may have some sort of treatment to avoid preeclampsia ever happening. Thanks for listening. The print version of this interview appears in PitMed magazine, which you can find on our website, pitmed.health.pit.edu. That's pit with two T's. This episode was written and produced by Elaine Vatone with Maya Best. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. PitMed magazine is published by the University of Pittsburgh Office of University Communications and Marketing and the School of Medicine. Mm-hmm.